This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I'm the Senior Administrator at the Hendrick Center here at DTS. And today, we're going to be talking about grief and how Christians should approach it. I am joined today by Joe Regal, who is a DTS grad and volunteer hospital chaplain at Clements Hospital and Baylor Hospital. Thank you so much for being here, Joe. Um, I'm also joined by Andy Thacker, who is a professor of counseling here at DTS and a regular guest here on the Table Podcast, and we're so thrilled to have you here as well, Andy. Uh, Thanks for having me. And we're also joined by one of my bosses, so I'm going to have to be on my best behavior, uh, Bill Hendricks, who is the Executive Director for Christian Leadership here at the Hendricks Center as well. Thanks for being with us. As Thank well, you. Bill. It's, <laughs> All right. it's, it's great to be on the other side of the microphone, as it were. I'm sure it is. That's true. Yeah, he's also a host. <laughs> he's not just my boss. He's a host on the podcast as well. All right. So today we're talking about grief. Um, and, you know, things have been absolutely crazy in our world for a while. And so, and with that has come a lot of um, hardship and a lot of death and a lot of loss. And so we felt like it was very much a, a time and um, a time to address it, but also it being a really, you know, a lifelong issue that everybody faces, not just when the world is going crazy, but grief is something that every single person will probably face in their life. And so we're going to talk about that today and just how we as Christians might approach it differently. Um, So just to start off with, I think it's really important for everybody to understand what grief even is. You know, we throw around the term sometimes, I wouldn't say a lot, but sometimes, but we want to make sure that we're all on the same page when we're talking about it. So um, Andy, would you mind giving me, giving us just a brief definition? What is it? What is grief? Yes, grief is the response that a person's body, their brain, their whole being has when they lose something that is important to them. So it's characterized by different experiences, and those can be different for everybody, but it is a visceral, emotional, psychological response to losing something that's important. And so when I hear that, it's more than just um, addressing death, right? You can have grief for a variety of things. Is that true? Anything that's lost. Anything that's lost and that's important. Okay. And Joe, would you have anything you'd like to add on how we should think about what grief is as somebody who's kind of been a chaplain and in the midst of a lot of those losses, at least in a hospital setting? Right. Um, one of the things about grief is that uh, there's no expiration date on grief. When it comes, it may linger for a long time, but it does diminish in its intensity over a period of time. Okay. And, and is it, so it lasts for a long time. Is grief something that we can prepare for? 
yes and no. We we hear about it, but until you actually experience it, uh, and of course it depends on what the depth of the grief is. Um, but I think one of the earliest things that people experience by way of grief is when they're a child and they lose a pet. And for many, that's the first time they really experience a sense of loss or it could be a grandparent. Um, and, you know, from an adult perspective, those seem like a magnitude of difference, but to a child, uh, you know, either one can just be severe and that's probably their first experience. And so in a way, nothing's prepared them for that. Um, and so those are the first baby steps, if you will, that people often take to have the experience of what is grief, uh, at least feel like, even if they don't even know what they're experiencing. Now, Bill, do you want to um, talk for a second on, on your experience with grief and why you, we've included you as one of the guests on this podcast? I mean, in addition to the fact that you're brilliant and um, my boss <laughs> and you can be there. on any podcast you want to be on. <laughs> if, if you think I'm brilliant, Kim, you need to get out more. Um, <laughs> well, I like, to, I like to say that I have a 20-year a PhD in grief. Um, we're in 2020, just a, put a reference on this. And in 2000, um, my first wife, Nancy passed away of breast cancer. And I immediately entered what Ecclesiastes calls the house of mourning, which is another way of talking about grief and uh, discovered that that's kind of a club that nobody really wants to join. But once you've joined it, um, you, you start to wake up and realize other people that have had the same experience and in that time, the 20 years since she's been gone, you know, it's been my, I guess, sad, but in, in, an, in an odd sort of way, um, privilege to welcome newcomers into the house of mourning. Uh, it seems like God's actually given me a bit of a ministry, particularly with men who have lost their wives. And I frequently find myself um, taking a brother aside who's lost their wife and, and saying, Listen, let me do for you what somebody did for me, and that is early on, let me tell you what you're into now and, and what's going to happen over this particularly next year and, and try to give them some orientation as to what just happened and, and what, what do I even do about it. And so that's, that's been a large part of my own uh, schooling in this, in this house of mourning. And you said that we can and cannot prepare for it. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Well, okay. So uh, Nancy was diagnosed in 1993. And of course, we didn't know if she was going to die or when. She was fairly certain she would. And in fact, she turned out to be right. And so in one sense, we had seven years to prepare. And when I say we, meaning me, Nancy, and our three daughters. And the way I put it was... Um, the specter of the possibility of death almost became like a visitor in our home, an, an unwanted visitor. But at the oddest moments, it was like there was another person in the room just kind of sitting there going, yeah, y'all are doing what you're doing, but I'm here too. And so this, this possibility would always impinge itself. You'd, you'd be having a celebration like a birthday, you know, Nancy's birthday. And, and all of a sudden, things would just freeze because you could tell she was realizing, you know, this may be my last birthday. 
you know, or an anniversary. I may not be here next year. And, 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 and we'd have this experience. And I've often said that oftentimes the, in the case of death, the grief begins long before the death because you're starting to already lose um, sort of the unimpended, uh, unimpinged freedom that we typically have in relationships where we think, man, this is great. This is going to go on. And yet something says, particularly when it gets really severe, you know, and you've got a diagnosis that's fairly terminal, you go, no, this isn't going to go on for much longer. You're already starting to grieve and, and start to learn about what that's like. Andy, is there anything you would want to add in on how to think through if you, how you can prepare for grief or if you should even try or if it's just something you kind of have to walk through when it happens? Sure. Yeah. There's a lot you can't prepare for, like Bill said, because you don't know what the loss may be. I work a lot with kids and adolescents, and I think life gives us practice moments. And thinking from a, a neuroscience perspective, whenever we enter into a new experience, we don't have any neurological framework for that experience. So it's going to produce anxiety naturally. So as parents, as pastors, as helpers, as whatever our role is, we can allow the people that we shepherd, whether it be our kids or our flock, whoever it is, that when we do enter a smaller loss that may not be as profound as maybe the death of a loved one, if we allow ourselves to feel it, there's a great saying, feel it to heal it then we can lay down neurological pathway that we know how to enter into that darkness and allow ourselves to be there and, and to heal and not have to rush through it, not have to cover it, not have to numb it. So I think of those opportunities like the death of, of a pet. A lot of times parents will <clears throat> hide that <laughs> or mm -hmm. be like, well, they went to live with another family or, Nemo's fishing or swimming <laughs> in the ocean and Nemo got flushed. Um, but even as adults, when we have, when we enter these seasons of grief, um, we're in pandemic season, there's a lot of loss and we want to just rush through it and say, I'm fine. It's fine. I, I'm fine. But to really sit in that place of it really hurts and it stinks that you didn't get to finish the school year or that your company laid you off or that you don't get to participate in something you were looking forward to or have a birthday party or whatever. So I think if we if we can allow ourselves in the little losses space to feel and to heal, then it lays some good neurological pathways that when it's a really big loss it's not going to make it hurt any less, but it's going to give us a little bit of insulation from the anxiety that can come with mm. the unknown. Fascinating. So, so Joe, what does grief actually look like? So, so we've talked about what it is and, you know, maybe trying to prepare ourselves a little bit to walk into varying levels of the, um, of the, depth of the loss, but when it comes to actually recognizing it in yourself, you know, obviously you are probably aware of it, you, what you lost, maybe not, um, but what does grief look like, at least individually, like 
for kind of diagnosing yourself, you know, I know, please, I, Andy is a professional counselor and is like, please don't do that. <laughs> but, you know, recognizing it in yourself, but also recognizing it in, you know, a loved one or a friend or a coworker, that kind of thing saying, you know what, I think that it, I think we're dealing with grief here. What does it look like, Joe? ago that in my training to become a hospital and I was a I had led a very secluded life uh, everything was fine uh, I was a very happy person but then God knew that I had to be confronted with the agony the heartache of life and that's what happened when I was at children's now, knowing what I know now would have been great if I'd known it back then, but when I was going through that, I didn't know I was going through grief. I just knew that something was wrong and that there was a lot of sadness around me. Uh, Children's is a level one trauma hospital, and I thought I was being traumatized, actually, because I a lot of moms, dads, children going through a lot of turmoil, and I didn't know how to handle all that. Um, but I came away very much respecting what moms and dads were doing. I also saw that grief was um, demonstrated in different ways. There were a lot of different cultures where uh, over there uh, parents lost a child because of death, and some were very pensive and quiet. Others were very wailing. It is expressed differently. And um, today I see... Um, uh, as somebody just said, uh, with the pandemic, I see a lot of losses out there in the world today, and people are grieving, don't realize it. Um, you know, a loss of a job or even a divorce or a loss of salary. I see a, loss, a lot of loss of freedom that people have. Seeing a result of that, too. So those are my thoughts. Bill, as somebody who's, yeah, as somebody who has gone through it, not that Joe and Andy haven't gone through it, but you know, you've shared your story with us. What, what did you experience when you lost Nancy, particularly after you lost Nancy? Um, let me get into it by just mentioning, uh, several months ago, uh, a, a friend wanted me to talk with a friend who had lost somebody very close to him. And I met this gentleman, total stranger. And immediately we both knew we were in the club. Uh, if I can put it that crassly, but you know, he was, he was, he was still like in shock. You know, it was like, what am I facing here? He pulled out a photo of a sculpture and I wish I could uh, pull up the name of the sculpture, but it's a, it's a figure made out of metal. It's a giant metal figure of a, of a male, of a person um, sitting on a park bench and where the person's chest would normally be is a giant hole. So you look right through the person out into the background. And to me, that's a graphic capture of what many of us feel, certainly what I felt, like there's suddenly this huge emptiness inside, like something just got ripped out of you and you don't really even know what just happened. Um, you know, I 
every man I've ever met who's lost their wife, and again, that's just one kind of grief, uh, particularly when I go right after the, the death, because that, that's something I do. I drop what I'm doing. I go over to somebody's house. You know, their wife just died. Every single one of them has just been, like, staring. They're, they're like, what just happened? I, like they, they don't even know what to do. Um, and so I'm there to, you know, just try to do what I can and reassure them and just, as Mrs. Anything, be there. Um, I, my situation was a little complicated because uh, at, at the time of Nancy's death, our three daughters were 15, 13, and 8. And so I was holding Nancy's hand when she took her last breath. Um, my oldest daughter uh, just came into the room and I said, you know, mommy's just died. And, and right after that, the two little ones came in the room as well. And I said, girls, mommy's just died. And the, the, the middle one who, you know, total compassion. She, she'd been with mommy all the way through this thing, rushes toward the bed. The little one, she clearly didn't know what she was facing, but whatever it was, she wanted no part of it. And she started to back out of the room and instantly God gave me the, you know, the, the mind to realize, Bill, you've done what you could for Nancy. You got a new responsibility here. And I immediately rushed out of the room and I grabbed her and picked her up and just held her. And we just stood out there in the corridor crying for a little while. And I got plunged into this thing uh, called single parenting. And as bad as the grief and the loss were, the single parenting didn't give me a whole lot of time to process. Um, but I will remember after that first week and all the family goes back home and, and I get the girls off to school and I, I come home and I sit down in the living room. Finally, I just came apart. I just, just had no other reaction other than to just bawl my eyes out for a good long while. And again, not even knowing all that I was crying about, but this just sense of, of visceral pain finally getting some expression that was very much needed. And, uh, and I will say that first year, I call it the year of firsts, you will continue to go through these grief cycles because every birthday, every anniversary, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, all these different milestones, you know, you, you realize, oh, there's the empty chair at the table. You know, oh, that's right. We, we would have done this if, if he or she had been there. And, uh, and so if somebody told me if I could get through the first year, that the only goal was to get through it and it didn't have to look pretty. And his words turned out to be absolutely right because that first year was terrible. But, uh, you know, here I am 20 years later and, and I, Andy, Andy put her finger on it. I did a lot of grief work and, you know, the way out of the pain is back through the pain. And I'm sure she can tell you a whole lot more about, different kinds of, of grief therapy that, that somebody may want to consider. It's very difficult to describe is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I mean, I have gone through some grief as well. Obviously, nothing quite that deep. Um, but I can understand that it is very much an, I would have to imagine it's very much an individual kind of thing that you've, you know, everybody is feeling it a bit differently. Um, what, 
but that being said, okay, so that, so we've been emphasizing the individual, but I'd like to at least talk briefly about the idea of corporate grief. Um, because, you know, during the pandemic, I think we have seen that. And, um, and there have been some, you know, there were some articles and that kind of thing coming out saying, you know, this is, this is grief. Everybody's feeling grief. This is what happens when it's a, a corporate grief. So Andy, would you mind talking about that a little bit? I, you referenced it just a, a tiny bit. And I think earlier what you were saying, but can you just tell us a little bit, maybe what corporate grief looks like? I mean, you could talk about whatever scale you would like, but what, what does that look like for, you know, people who are living together and all feeling lost at the same time? Mm. Yeah, we see that happen. So like in Bill's family, his entire family system was grieving the loss of Nancy. So corporate grief happens all the time, actually. We just don't always realize it. And it's not always as broad a scale as what what people are experiencing with the pandemic, since it's a global pandemic. But we always grieve pretty corporately because if something happens to one person in a family system, the impact of that ripples out and touches the entire family system. One of the things that's unique about corporate grieving on a really broad scale like now is that everyone is hurting to some degree and suffering. And so a lot of our bandwidth is already spoken for, and it's hard to find resources outside of yourself that aren't already depleted. So what I mean by that is when I work with a family that's in grief, for whatever reason, divorce, death, job transition, where they've moved, whatever it is, usually we can find resources outside of the family to be supportive of each family member so that they're not taxing the system and, um, you know, if it's, uh, I think the greatest grief that we experienced as a family is our, one of our nieces died several years ago and my husband and I just didn't have anything to give each other because in the sense of being supportive, we could be together, but it was just hard to support one another in the loss because we were both experiencing such a profound loss. So you could, we went outside of that. We talked to our counselor, we talked to our pastors. And I think that's what's unique when we have corporate grief on a broad scale is that the system is so weighed down by everybody feeling the weight of what's going on. Also, we all grieve so differently that oftentimes we tend to judge each other when other people's grief doesn't look like what we perceive it should look like, or if it doesn't look like us, that's a lot of times why couples tend to get divorced after a kid dies is because there's this thought of, if you really loved whoever you would grieve, like I grieve and everybody is so unique that everybody is going to interface with grief a little bit differently. And so corporately, I think it's so important to maintain that sense of empathy that this is so individual and what you do looks different than what I do. And I need to honor that in you, that you may cry and want to talk and want to be surrounded by people, or you may be very private in your experience or your expression of grief. And that's, that's okay too. Hmm. Joe, um, how would you help the people who are listening, um, 
recognize when grief is unhealthy. When, you know, I, I, from what we've been talking about, this is something everybody goes through. Everybody loses things. It's kind of a part of at least the fallen world that we live in. And, um, and so it's, it's not unhealthy to go through grief, but is there a point in your opinion and in your experience where it does turn unhealthy? Um, let me answer that by saying this, that my own experience five years ago, I went through a, a cancer, a lymphoma cancer, and I went to a cancer hospital down in Houston and it was known as the cancer hospital. I was assigned to a cancer floor. And it wasn't long before I started calling myself a cancer patient. And then God intervened. He said, Joe, you're not a cancer patient. You are a person who has cancer. And this, there's a profound difference in what I just said. And in my experiences over at Clements and Baylor Hospital, I, I visit lots of people who forget who they are. You know, like a, a death you know, announcement, they feel like their, their whole world is over, uh, their family members are impacted by that whole thing. And uh, I, I have a chance to remind people, this is the unhealthy part, that no, nothing is different. You are still a person. You're still a father or a mother or a sibling. Um, grandparent, those are the things that define you. It's not your cancer. So the unhealthy part is when people forget who they are. And they just start to identify themselves solely by their grief. Is that, am I hearing you correct? This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Andy or Bill, is there anything Yeah, you'd like to yeah, add? Absolutely. Um, if I can put it this way, I think that part of the unhealth uh, that particularly uh, Christians get into when we get involved with grief and loss is, is if I could put it this way, self-inflicted. <clears throat> Years ago, I had a pastor that, that I was doing some counseling with, who happened to be a DTS grad, by the way. He said to me on more than one occasion, you know, as Christians, the hardest part of our faith is knowing what to do with our emotions. And I've thought about that over and over over the years, and he's absolutely right. In the main, we don't do feelings very well. We have all kinds of theological doctrine and truth, and, and it's all true. It's biblical, right? And then, and then feelings come. And, of course, feelings by their nature are irrational, which means they go beyond 
what reason knows what to do with them. For that reason, they're a little scary. And, you know, lots of, I mean, Andy can speak to this from a historical perspective better than any of us. Christians over the centuries have often done things that are, uh, they've done things with emotions that, that are not at all healthy. So here we come and grief comes along. And in a way, we're not, we're not as a people trained very well with what to do with that messy stuff. One of the great comforts of our faith, however, is that Jesus had emotions and he showed them. And more importantly, God lets us express our feelings as raw and as, as uh, messy as they may be. We have plenty of evidence of that in the Psalms and elsewhere. And in fact, as a kind father always does, invites us to come and tell daddy, just let it out. And I remember many times in prayer after uh, Nancy died, I mean, pretty raw emotions, and I'm beating the pillow, and I'm screaming, and I'm saying things. And, you know, it would never be stuff that I would want publicly disseminated because people would think, A, I was crazy, and, and B, I was totally irreligious. And the answer is, I, I, the way I put it is, I went a little bit crazy to avoid going completely insane. And, yeah, I did a lot of irreligious things. And that's where grace comes in. God knows that I'm, I'm, I'm about to just go completely apart. And in his, in his tenderness, he comes to us in our, in our terrible feelings and says, look, I know how you're feeling. I'm with you in this. And I know you want me to just wave a wand and take it away. It doesn't work that way. But I will walk with you through this pain. And together, we're going to get you to a place of health. Andy, is there anything you... Oh, go ahead, Joe. At one time, I wasn't sure whether Christians should grieve or not. Mm. Epaphroditus, that Epaphroditus was a close friend of his. He was almost died. And Paul said, quote, unquote, that God had mercy on Epaphroditus and me also, lest I would have had grief upon grief. Here was a, a pillar of the Christian church and he knew where Epaphroditus would have gone if he had died, but he still would have had grief. And that's such a comfort to me to know that it's okay for Christians to grieve. It's okay. Yeah, I love that, just the permission to feel. And one of the themes I hear in this is that emotions are, they're God-given. I think a lot of times we want to say, we want to take scripture out of context and say things like in your anger or don't be sinful and be angry or whatever like that. And it's God gave us emotions. They're not good. They're not bad. They just are. And they signal to us that there's something about our experience that's important to pay attention to. And I think it's so great what you said, Bill, about God is 100% okay with whatever you bring to him. There's a saying that says empathy is being able to sit in the dark with someone without having to turn the lights on. And I think a lot of times Christians are very quick to try to turn on the lights and say, well, you know, at least he loved Jesus or, you know, you lost your job, but at least you still got Cobra coverage for six months. 
And anything that starts with at least is not empathic. And so just being able to sit with it and say, this is really hard and I'm so sorry. Um, Andy, is there anything that I guess that when you are walking alongside someone who is in grief or you yourself are grieving that you would say, you know, as a professional counselor, Hey, yes, absolutely feel grieve, find people, Lord willing, that can, can sit with you in the dark and, and, you know, and be with you caveat, if this starts happening, you might want to talk to somebody else. <laughs> Is there, you know, I, yeah. what does that look like? What yes. are those warning anytime, signs? Anytime someone starts to have thoughts that they want to die or that they want to hurt themselves. And I think there's a fine line with that because I don't think it's out of the ordinary necessarily. If you have someone who's lost a loved one to have that thought of, I don't want to go on without them. But if it's active thoughts of, I want to kill myself, that's a different, that's a different story. Or if, if someone finds themselves using substances more frequently or more intensely, that would be a good time to, to seek help. Also, if someone is having a hard time being gentle with themselves, that's not as dangerous as having thoughts of wanting to kill yourself, but Sometimes we're just our worst enemy and someone that's kind of like you said, Bill, you just got to get through the first year and it doesn't have to be pretty. It's, it's a win if you can just get dressed today and give yourself that freedom to say today may be a train wreck, but if we live through it, that's, that's good. Hmm. So turning our conversation to, um, Actually, so we've been talking about the nature, what it is, um, whether or not we can prepare for it, and then what it actually feels like when you're in the middle of it, and, um, and you know, some warning signs to look out for, that kind of thing. And so turning it to, okay, you're faced with this beast <laughs> that you're going to have to wrestle with. And, you know, I think I, I heard on a show one time, um, yes, this is my television, uh, counseling, but, um, that you have to, I, I really liked it. Um, they said, you know, it's essentially a monster that like you have to wrestle with and it wrestles with you. Like, and like, you're not done until both of you are done, <laughs> you know, and like, and you can't let it go and it's not going to let you go kind of thing. Um, so, how, so then if we're facing this, how does the gospel impact that wrestle, that struggle, that, you know, I don't want to necessarily put it in battle terminology because I don't think it's something that's won. You know, I think that you, from what I'm hearing from you all, it's something that you kind of consistently have. And, you know, there's always going to be pinpricks at least, you know, as you go through the rest of your life. So, but how does the gospel impact how Christians grieve? Joe, do you want to start us out on that? Well, that's a great question. Um, Well, our perspective is different as a Christian. We know that um, there's more to life than what we're experiencing. Um, When Was going to be, um, you know, whether I would survive the, the treatment, survive the cancer, uh, get back to whatever normal is. Um, 
But I felt like I was in a win-win situation in facing death like that, that if God was gracious and kind and compassionate and healed me, that'd be awesome. Um, if he chose not to, then I would have, a, uh, in my own case, a resurrected body to, to look forward to down the road, susceptible to cancer or COVID or any other kind of illnesses. So that was a great comfort. Um, I think that's all I've got. <laughs> well, let me, Bill, let me jump you gonna, in. Yeah. Yeah, that question immediately takes me to 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul uh, describes, we grieve, but not as those who have, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. And oftentimes we quickly move to the hope side of that, which is, of course, the gospel. But actually both sides of that equation are true. We grieve, but we also have hope. We do grieve. <clears throat> we do grieve. Let me be clear about that. The feelings of loss and grief and sadness are absolutely real. And we do ourselves no favors to pretend like they're not there, to try to stuff them, to try to narcotize them, to try to run away from them through, through work, through jumping into some new relationship, all the different ways that people do that. No, we do grieve, okay? The gospel enters in and says, yeah, you're going to grieve, but not as those who have no hope. What the gospel brings is hope. Well, what is that hope? Well, our hope is that the grief is not the end of the story. That in fact, as Romans 8 says, whatever we grieve here, it's all out of proportion. The, the glory that we will someday be revealed to us is all out of proportion to what these, these pains are right now. That, that God is going to settle all that. He's going to put that pain away and he's going to give us something unbelievably better. Okay. And so that doesn't take away the pain right now, but it gives us something. If you have hope, it means, okay, I think I can make it to that point because I got something to go toward. But think about the people that have no hope. Think about the people, for instance, who, you know, they lose a job. And they don't have God. They lose a child and they don't have God. Um, they lose a dream and they don't have God. And, and it, they're just like, that's it? That's all that I've got? And that's a terrible place to be. That is a terrible place to be. Um, Joe, I got a whole new appreciation for chaplains when my wife was uh, dying in the hospital. And, you know, she had a lot of friends and, and people were bringing flowers and Bible verses and prayers. And I mean, they, we had to finally kind of almost, you know, hand out tickets. There were so many people wanted to get in the room to say, you know, bye to Nancy. But I'd walk the corridors while she was, you know, sleeping or whatever. And I found out they put her on the floor where they send the people that are terminal. And room after room, I'm going by and I realize that these people are at the end of their days most of them had nobody visiting them except for the medical personnel and the chaplains. But think about that. Imagine coming to the end of your days and you know you're dying and you don't know what's on the other side and you don't have God and you don't have anybody there. I can't think of anything more horrible. Whereas to realize, you know, uh, I've lost this person or this job or this dream or whatever that loss is, and it really hurts. 
I'm so glad that I've got God. I'm so glad that he's given me this picture of what it's going to be like that I can hang on to during this really tough time. That'll keep me going. As long as I got hope, I can keep going. Andy, do you have any thoughts on how the gospel particularly impacts grief? Mm-hmm. I think it gives us meaning. And without meaning and without purpose, we will wither and psychologically kind of die. I, I think it gives us meaning that it's not kind of thinking about Ecclesiastes and what Solomon wrote about, that it's not all, this is not the end. This is not all there is. Well, then you reference Ecclesiastes, and I mentioned the house of mourning, and that's where it's from. But that passage says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Well, why? Because there's wisdom in the house of mourning. And I can testify to that. With all the pain and challenges that the last 20 years have thrown me, And by the way, the grief doesn't go away. It just reappears in new forms. Grief is not linear. You know, that whole cycle, you know, uh, seven stages of grief, that's a whole, I don't want to say a myth, but it doesn't apply to people that have lost somebody. That grief is more cyclical. It comes back on you. And here I am, you know, 20 years later, I'm finding out how grief works in new ways that I I hadn't even seen before. And yet with each of those, there's a new bit of wisdom that comes from that. It's like, huh, this is how life works. Hadn't seen that. Hadn't realized that. It certainly makes one more compassionate toward people that are in tough straits and less judgmental for people that are struggling. Uh, There's so many, if I could put it this way, if you let it, there's so many positives that grief can give you. But again, that's if you've got the gospel. If, If you've got the Holy Spirit talking into your ear, as it were, through scripture, saying, pay attention. This is what I was trying to teach you through this experience. So we have just a couple minutes left. And um, as it relates to addressing grief, which is kind of what we were talking about even now, and particularly addressing it as Christians, but kind of in closing statements, what would you, each one of you, um, say that people should know like what's just one thing people should know as they address grief that or as they turn to address grief or to recognize it so um andy let's start with you so one of the number one questions i get from most of my students is how long is too long to grieve and bill has already referenced this with the house of mourning grief never ends it just looks different as you walk through it. So there is no expiration date that if I put in five years of sadness, that at the end of five years, all right, let's get back to life. It is a lifelong process that will unfold because whatever is important that's been lost, it impacts you for the rest of your days and that whatever it is is no longer present. Joe, what would you say people need to know about addressing grief? Uh, Two things. One, uh, remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Uh, You are still a child of God's and you belong to him. Um, And that uh, 
Now, your grief will be unique and doesn't mean, mean you're a bad person if you grieve. Um, and just let allow yourself to go through, uh, endure it. And I guess I would say one thing about what Jesus did on the cross. Um, that was probably the most agonizing thing that's unimaginable from our point of view. And um, now one time he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, at that time he was separated from It was the joy set before him that he was able to endure the cross when he would be again be seated at the right hand of God. And it may be difficult to plan where you are, but make plans for what you'll be doing after you get through the, the grief, uh, whether it's joy or hope, or for my case, it was to see the birth of my first grandchild and got me through uh, my chemotherapy. Bill, what would you say? Well, my temptation is to say, yeah, what they said, because uh, I agree with everything Joe and Andy have said. I, maybe a different way to say it is your life is a story, and God has allowed something to happen that's brought loss and grief into that story. God himself is in your story, and so what your, I guess, challenge, your project, uh, task, whatever you, word you want to put on it, is to write the grief into the story, incorporate it into the story. Don't try to reject it as something that you don't have to deal with or shouldn't have to deal with. It's there as part of the wonderful tapestry that God is weaving in your life. And believe it or not, you can find him in the grief. And as Andy said, a lot of meaning in the grief. But you have to be intentional, I think, about not trying to push the grief away, but instead seeing it as yet another part of this amazing story that God is, is putting together as he takes you through your life. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Um, it has been really fascinating learning about what grief is, that it's, and, you know, at the most simple definition, the loss of something, um, what it feels like, uh, and that's particularly individual, but we can also experience it corporately and, um, you know, some warning signs, uh, when it can turn unhealthy, but definitely Joe's, um, Joe's point that, uh, one sign, you know, that grief is, is maybe taking an unhealthy turn is when we start to see ourselves only as a griever and we no longer recognize that, you know, our our personhood and who we are in a variety of other roles, um, particularly as a child of um, the king is, you know, when we're believers and that as we turn to address grief, like Bill just said, like we, our goal should be to weave it into our understanding of God's redemptive work in our life and, um, and to not reject it necessarily, but we don't allow it but we have the privilege as believers to not allow it to um, just dump us in a pit of despair, really. And we have the ability for it to be redeemed. So I just want to thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, Bill, Andy, Joe, you guys were great hosts. Um, yeah, not hosts. <laughs> you guys were great guests. Um, and we just want to thank all of you who are listening and thank you for your time. And uh, we hope that this was helpful and we hope that you join us next time as we discuss issues of God and culture. 
Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.